You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. Intercom, making internet business personal at scale. Learn more at intercom.com. Welcome to another edition of the Inside Intercom podcast. This week, we're looking at the intersection of two topics, design and startup leadership. And to help us do just that is Daniel Burka. Daniel is a design partner at GV, the investment arm of Alphabet, formerly known as Google Ventures, where he helps a portfolio of more than 300 companies solve their design challenges. Prior to linking up with GV, Daniel spent over a decade helping startups with product design. The cliff notes of his career, he co-founded the web agency Silver Orange, where he helped design the Firefox brand for Mozilla, was a creative director at dig.com, co-founded the mobile incubator Milk, and led mobile user experience for Google+. In a conversation with Intercom Director of Brand Design, Stuart Scott Curran, Daniel sheds light on the role designers should be playing in solving fundamental business problems. So there's all these questions that are floating around a business, and you're like, ah, oh, I don't know why we can't succeed with this, or you know, if we did A or we did B, which one's going to be more successful, which one's likely to fall on our face? And designs at this excellent position between engineering and product to really go and test these theses uh, really, really rapidly. What it means to really have a healthy design culture. One of my friends the other day was, was posting on Twitter about a design culture means that you come up with the ideas and me as a designer, I go and solve them. And I'm like, that's a terrible way to operate. I think a design culture isn't that you give design immense power. I think design is most effective when everyone considers their job to be design in some ways. And why humility is key to great design work. I, I think what's really lacking often among designers is humility. I think, you know, I've been designing for 20 years and all I've learned is to be wrong faster. I can be empathetic with somebody who suffers from anxiety and, you know, think that, oh, you know, I'm trying to understand your life. But really what I need to do is design something and then see real people using it and, and figure out what's working and what's not working. If you enjoy this episode or have enjoyed other Inside Intercom interviews we published this year, we'd love to hear from you about how we can make the show even better in 2017. If you have 10 minutes to spare, please hop online and fill out our survey at bit.ly forward slash intercom survey. Again, that's bit.ly forward slash intercom survey. And your feedback will help us give you the best show possible. And now, let's hop into the studio with Stuart Scott Curran and Daniel Berger. Uh, welcome, Daniel. Good to see you. Thanks so much for having me. Quick one. I recently saw that you tweeted that you've been designing for 20 plus years and you're still blown away by how often people in the web design community are willing to share their knowledge. So thank you for coming here and doing the same with us. <laughs> That's much appreciated. I know your time is valuable, so we really are happy that you're here spending some of it with us. I think to get started, it'd be really good for you just to give us like a quick feel of what your role over the last four or so years is, is being at GV. You know, what does a design partner or a venture firm do exactly? And what are the type of portfolio brands that you've been working with? Um, sure. So I've got a very strange job in the design world in that, you know, I work in this fairly large venture capital company. Um, we've invested in just over 300 companies at this point, and it's my job and, and, you know, my team's job to work with all of the companies we've invested in on their design challenges. So a lot of the time that's working with their design leadership to build teams and create, you know, um, more functional teams within their companies. Uh, other times it's working with product people or entrepreneurs, you know, founders on the product direction of their business. Um, it's kind of using design in any way we can to leverage the business to help them be more successful. 
I think that's something that's really interesting. It's something that we've talked about before is this like concept of design leadership or like leadership through design. I'm interested to hear a little bit deeper on like the role that you feel like design and designers can can play within the wider business problems that they're trying to solve. And we've talked for a long while about designers looking for a seat at the table. And I'd be interested to hear from you, like, you know, what does it look like for you to, like, have that seat at the table? Are there habits as, like, design leaders that, that we should be doing? You know, what should be expected of us with that responsibility? Sure. This is something I've been thinking about a lot lately. It's, you know, a couple of years ago, uh, one of my co uh, coworkers and I went over to London, and we were just starting to invest in Europe at the time. And we sat down with a, a bunch of entrepreneurs over a week. So it was almost always sitting down with the founder of a company. You know, we'd have coffee. And, and the first question that we'd always ask is, when you think of design, what do you think of? And almost always the, the pattern went something like this. They'd say, oh, you know, brand's really important. We need great brand design. And we're like, oh, okay, that's interesting. You know, London has a long history of brand design. That's, that's not too surprising. And then they'd talk about, you know, the look and feel for a product needs to be great. And so they kind of move down the stack a little bit further in, in the, you know, design layers. And then they might talk a little bit about, uh, you know, our product needs to be easy to use. And I think design can help with that. So when they think of design, they think of kind of these top-level areas of design. And it was really interesting that while we were asking that question, the, design, the, the entrepreneurs were often looking a little bit nervous. You know, it's like we were putting them on the spot and asking them about something we knew a lot about. You know, we were designers and that they didn't feel so comfortable with. And then – it was really telling that when we asked the next question, which was, um, you know, what keeps you up at night as an entrepreneur, they visibly looked more relaxed. They'd sit back in their seat, and now we're in their, you know, in their wheelhouse. And then they talk about all these other things. They talk about hiring and retaining talent. They talk about moving into new markets, especially moving uh, towards America. They talk about raising new venture capital funds. They talk about changing features and how that was going to affect their user base. They talk about all these things that didn't have to do with design. Yep. You know, I'm doing air quotes here. Um, but these were the things that were really important to them. And the more, you know, while we were thinking about it, you know, we're thinking, well, we can apply design to all of those problems. But most people, including designers themselves, don't consider these to be the problems of design. And so, well, I think designers have, you know, we argued for a seat at the table for the last decade. And, you know, in the last five years, it's becoming a reality. What I'm afraid of is that design is still this, you know, entrepreneurs have heard that design is important. You know, they've seen companies like Apple and um, Airbnb and these other companies are famous for leading with design. And they understand that there's this pixie dust that can be applied that's called design, but they don't really know what design can do. And frankly, I think a lot of designers show up at the leadership table, you know, sit in the C-suite, and they bring a discussion of design craft with them. So they're talking about yep. grid systems, you know, yep. design systems, yep. talking about, you know, brand. They're talking about these things that, you know, don't get me wrong, they're they're important. But they're not the fundamental elements of the business that, that will matter if, you know, they're, they're not the, the number one thing that will matter if you succeed or fail. Yeah. And I think that's, that's too bad. And I think designers are, are frankly squandering the seat at the table. So if entrepreneurs find it comfortable to talk about the problems that they face and, and designers are, are comfortable to talk about what's easy for them, which might be grid systems and typography and all of that other stuff, like how do you think we start to like bridge that gap a little bit? 
Well, I think designers should stop talking about their craft. Uh, it's, you know, craft is a really interesting thing to talk about with other designers, and your team will embrace yep. it. These are these yep. are the bread and butter parts of design. I mean, if you if you don't have good craft, like you're just kind of not a designer, in, in my opinion. Um, but I think designers need to stop talking so much and listen more carefully. When right. an entrepreneur comes to you and says that their number one problem is hiring and retaining tech talent, you know, engineering talent, I immediately can think, okay. The engineers who we're trying to recruit, where are we looking for them? Mm-hmm. What other products have they seen? What other messaging? What other brands have they, you know, uh, they experienced? What's our positioning? What's the, you know, the basic uh, systems design, you know, between our approach all the way through enticing them, through closing them, through retaining them? You know, this is design, right? We can design a system that's better at that. We can, you know, do some uh, some testing around, you know, what types of messaging work when an engineer is looking between a small startup or a startup in our, you know, one of our competitors or looking to go to, you know, say a, a Google or a Facebook. You know, there's yep. different enticements between yep. coming these things. I can help test against that and figure out which messages actually resonate the best with an engineer. And so the way that I think of design as being most effective is that design done right can be the scientific method for business. Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, one of my, my colleagues said that, that phrase to me a few months ago, and I've been kind of chewing on it. And the really powerful thing is that designers can make prototypes, that can make designs that look inevitable, that look real. And so it allows us to test theories really quickly, right? So we, we come up with a thesis around, oh, we're losing engineering talent because of X. Oh, okay, what if we, you know, design solutions A, B, or C? Which one is going to actually be, you know, a better design system for recruiting talent, right? You know, how do we handle the phone screen? How do we handle, you know, the our jobs page? How do we write our job descriptions? How do we close the talent? What's the enticement that we can have that's more than just salary that will help us close, you know, a, a great candidate? You know, these kinds of things can be well designed and designers are in a position using modern design tools to prototype these things and go and test them really rapidly so we can move much more quickly. And so, in a general sense, I know I've been talking about hiring, but in a general sense, I think the biggest risk to businesses, and we see this all the time in, in the startups we work with, is that there's a, a great deal of uncertainty in the business. So there's all these questions that are floating around a business, and you're like, ah, oh, I don't know why we can't succeed with this, or you know, if we did A or we did B, which one's going to be more successful, which one's likely to fall on our face? And designs at this excellent position between engineering and product to really go and test these theses uh, really, really rapidly. And I think design integrated with other teams doing that type of work, you know, to sit in the C-suite, listen to what everyone's concerns are, you know, what's keeping them up at night, what is, you know, the major objectives for the next quarter or two quarters, and then going uh, go around and create more certainty about the direction you should take is an incredibly high leverage thing to do for designers. Yeah. And I think you said before that you'd reckon that, that too many designers just see design as, as their job. When in reality, it should maybe only be about 20%. I might have said that. You might. That's true. <laughs> yeah. So how do you think or what are some of the ways that you think we can get away from that mindset a little bit and, and just get more involved with like core business, particularly for like younger designers, maybe like outside of the design leadership that, that gets to sit in the C-suite? I think there are, there are two aspects of this. One is that a huge part of design is politics. And so I meet lots of young designers and they complain that in their organization, 
they made great designs in Sketch or Photoshop, and they never saw the light of day, or they got dragged sideways, and now they're a wreck when they, they finally go live, or they're not proud of the work that actually got released. And um, that's often because you didn't do the hard work six months ago, creating the relationships with your PM and engineering team, building your credibility. Yep. So that's that's one aspect to it that, as a young designer, I wouldn't discount. I think yep. that working in design tools is really a pretty small percentage of your job. Yep. Figuring out how to navigate even a small organization, even if you work in a company of six people, yep. working with those other five people is extremely difficult, and you should consider that to be part of your job. So. I think one of the the best ways to kind of build your leverage within a within a company is to get into a prototyping mindset. And this is something I talk to young designers about a lot is you can sit around in meetings, you know, you'll get called into meetings and everyone will be talking about strategy and everyone will be kind of bullshitting themselves about what their best direction to go is. And as a designer, even a young designer, what I would do is sit in the meeting, take notes about what everybody thinks is actually the best direction and go outside the meeting and spend the next few hours prototyping that idea. Yeah. Even if you don't think it's the best idea in the world, the best thing to do is to give some edges to that thing that everyone was talking about. So instead of everyone talking in the abstract about which product direction to go in, give it some shape. Make a prototype in InVision or Marvel or you know one of the, the current prototyping tools. Bring it back to the product manager, the engineer who came up with the idea and say, hey, you know that concept that you guys were talking about in the meeting, like here's, here's how I see it. Let's talk about it and build on that together. And all of a sudden you're – the person who can give the meat to something. You can put bones on something and, yep. and no longer is everyone confused because they're all talking about kind of an abstract concept. Now they're talking about a real thing. Something appears real. And yep. again, that's kind of the sleight of hand of design, right? Yep. Is to make something that is originally very loose-edged to give it some shape and now we can all talk about it. And the side effect of this is that now you're the person holding the object. You know, you gave that idea shape, yep. and everyone feels bought in because they were suggesting the ideas that now you're putting together into the prototype. And that gives you an incredible position within the company where you're the person who helps kind of make ideas reality. And is the root of, you know, some of this that, that we need to think about, like, how we build, like, a culture of design rather than just having design as that, like, one function of the company? I'm interested in, like, how you feel, like, that culture looks like and how you uh, maybe advise startups in the, in the GV portfolio to, to create and, and cultivate that. This is a really interesting question, this idea about a design culture. I think sometimes this is misconstrued. Even even one of my friends the other day was, was posting on Twitter about, you know, a design culture means that you come up with the ideas and me as a designer, I go and solve them. And I'm like, that's bullshit. Like, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's a terrible way yeah. to operate. Yeah. I think a design culture isn't that you give design immense power. Uh, I think design is most effective when everyone considers their job to be design in some ways. You know, I, I thought it was very, very depressing. A few years ago, I heard about, or I was talking to a woman who was uh, an engineer in a company, and she was talking about how wonderful the design team was. They go sit in this room down the hall, and sometimes I look through the glass, and they're so creative in there. And I was like, oh, my God, like, design is, like, creativity is isolated to this one aquarium room in your, yeah. in your business. Yeah. Like, that's so depressing. Yeah. And it's also very ineffective. I think where I've seen design be really successful is where everyone considers to be design part of their job. You know, whether you're an engineer or a designer or a PM, that design, and when I say design, I certainly don't mean aesthetics. I mean, you know, fundamentally, are we building things for our customers well? Yep. You know, things that will make their lives better or easier. Everybody can do that. 
and you know, working with engineers and you know, in terms of thinking about product quality and why product quality matters from a design perspective is something that's important for your engineering team as well. And so this idea of a design-led organization where design makes all the decisions, I think is is a bit of a fallacy. I think yeah. you know, even even the companies that are famous for being design-led aren't really the the most effective when design is deeply integrated into all of the teams. Just before we continue with today's episode, I wanted to let you know about Offscript. It's a new series of candid conversations with intercom leadership all about the extraordinary AI-driven transformation we're currently experiencing. Episode 1 is on our YouTube channel right now. Here's a teaser of what you can expect. I don't want to come across as overly dramatic, but for every single tech company, this is an adapt-or-die moment. It's inevitable that all businesses are going to go AI first. It's just a matter of time. In this post-AI world, new companies will rise, old companies will fall. Of course, some of these new companies will flame out. Some old companies will pivot successfully too. I don't think any of us could see a world where this wasn't going to be one of the biggest changes in the customer service landscape ever. The world we care about is customer service. And it's so patently obvious that the old way will be quickly obsolete. We're racing hard to build a future which will result in better experiences and results for customers and businesses too. It's not just a product change, it's a mindset change. Let's make space to talk about all of this. We have so much we want to share. We want to explore these ideas in the open. We want to provoke new ones in you. We want to learn from your reaction. You just click the kind of like big stupid go button, right, and see what happens. Welcome to Offscript. That's all to come on Offscript. The first episode is out now. You can watch it on Intercom's YouTube channel and we'll bring you audio versions of the episodes right here. Now, back to today's episode. One of the things that I know that you're a big fan of and something that GV has written a full book about are like design sprints, which can be a fundamental element of, of design culture. At the risk of like oversimplifying, we think about all disciplines of a company coming together to research a problem, ideate on solutions, build a prototype, test it. You know, we've talked about some of that within like a five-day window. In your experience, like what would you say defines a successful sprint? Are there part teams that are tempted to undervalue or overlook? Sure. So design sprints are in a lot of ways, you know, it's all the things I've been talking about in our interview condensed into a week. Yeah. So the the biggest you know, the most successful sprints we see are when we're working on the most fundamental problem that a company is dealing with right now. So the first question we'll ask in the kind of pre-sprint preparation is, you know, we'll literally ask the entrepreneur, what's keeping you up at night? Or, you know, what are your major goals for the next quarter or two? If the problem's not, you know, kind of pants on fire, like it just doesn't ship as often. And so we're much more likely to work on problems that are deep, core, fundamental, immediate problems to the business. So I think that's that's one of the critical ones. And I've seen a lot of people work on slightly trivial projects in a design sprint and think it's just for fun. We really do measure our success for sprints based on shipping successful products. The other one is that design sprint involves um, everyone from within the business. So we are very careful that it is not 
designers going and isolating themselves in a fancy pants office with our Eames chairs. The designers so often want to retreat and come back with a genius solution, yep. but it doesn't work that way. And so in a design sprint, it's almost always you know two or three designers, one or two engineers, uh, the head product person, and then usually some unusual people. We'll get you know a finance person in. We'll get somebody from customer service. Yep. We'll get somebody in sales. You know These kinds of people have direct access to customers and know kind of what the core business objectives of a problem are, um, are fundamental to succeeding at a sprint. Like we, we were working on a, a sprint a year or so ago with a company called Savvy Oak that makes robots for hotels. And it was critical. You know, in the first day of the sprint, we talked to their chief operating officer. So this person's in charge of mostly making the big deals with the hotels. And that guy told us on the first day, he goes, listen, the number one thing with this sprint is to – if we can drive up the guest satisfaction index at hotels, uh, you know, we're going to be very successful as a company. And the rest of us are all like – guest satisfaction index like do tell like and it turns out there's this really core piece of the hoteling business that you know if if you can drive up that score you'll sell tons of robots well of course that's important to us but if we had been just sitting around as designers and engineers coming up with a delightful solution we wouldn't have solved for that problem it's interesting you mentioned that because I, i really wanted to ask you like you know when it comes to software company are there any unique learnings from sprints that you've done I know you work in some really radically different spaces you know you work in like health robotics you mentioned agriculture I know you've worked in like are there like any like interesting like differences or or, or learnings that you've seen there since you've started working with those types of companies the really interesting thing with those products is they're kind of the classically definition where you're not designing for people like you and so design sprints are this way to really get direct feedback from customers, you know, very rapidly. So, you know, we start with an idea on on Monday or Tuesday, and by Friday, we're testing it with five actual customers. So, you know, just a couple of months ago, I was working with a company called Quartet Health, and they work in the mental health space. They have a business based out of New York. And we did a design sprint with them, and it's absolutely fascinating when we work with them because you're either working with primary care physicians or with uh, behavioral health professionals or with patients. And in this case, we were doing a test with patients, and it's absolutely eye-opening to design software and then try to put it in front of somebody who suffers from depression or anxiety. And, like, it's it's incredibly good for, you know, designers love talking about empathy. But in this case, you know, know, many times when you're working in – you know, either enterprise businesses or things like healthcare, you really have to get well outside your own head because the things that are, you know, pressuring a, a mental health patient or a behavioral health, you know, professional or an oncologist or geneticist are very, very different from what we're dealing with. And so it's very, very useful to do a process where you're actually getting in front of customers very, very rapidly. And that's why, you know, we're incredibly bullish about using sprints in that context because the decisions you make obviously have significant impact. These are critical things for people's basic health. And it's a way to test some of your theses in that area very, very quickly and and safely. You mentioned empathy. That's something that we hear mentioned a lot these days. It's kind of a hot word right now. I worry sometimes that that we use that word without necessarily understanding what it actually means and whether that just kind of like masks like a broader set of traits that and 
approaches that we should have as as designers when we're approaching a problem. Are there any of those traits that that you think that successful designers share and and how they approach problems? Yeah, I I mean, I agree with you. I think empathy is one of those things you see in conferences and on posters and, you know, everyone gets feels very good about themselves for for talking about empathy. I I think what's really lacking often among designers is humility. I think, you know, I've been designing for 20 years and all I've learned is to be wrong faster. You know, I I can be empathetic with somebody who suffers from anxiety and, you know, think that, oh, you know, I'm I'm trying to understand your life. But really what what I need to do is design something and then see real people using it and and figure out what what's working and what's not working cuz just imagining yourself you know trying to put yourself in someone's shoes is like not good enough you know life's not that simple humans aren't that simple yeah and you know it works fine enough if you're designing a weather app i guess you know like oh what's someone yeah. worrying about at 8 in the morning when they're about to head out into the city it's, it's okay. You know, it's certainly better than just designing an app just for yourself. Mm-hmm. But the real secret weapon of this stuff is user research. You know, it's something, you know, we have a, a researcher on our team, Michael Margolis, who's, who's excellent. And he's really our secret weapon, yeah. you know, working with any of the startups we're working with. Because almost always what's creating uncertainty within decision making is a lack of knowledge about how users will respond to something. And, you know, research is a very, very effective, still very underappreciated tool, I think, in the design arsenal. Is there any, like, research methodologies or or, or tools that, that you use that you've found particularly effective? I mean, easily the most effective thing we do is one-on-one user interviews. Yep. So we're doing interviews in a, you know, this isn't like rocket science. We're not using retina tracking or any of that crap. It's like Hangouts or use some other video chat software. Go to meeting, something like that in front of a laptop, um, being recorded, and a very good researcher. So, you know, in our case, we use Michael. Um, but just asking the right questions of, of somebody and watching for their reactions, you know, having them yep. be able to re- react to a prototype. Yeah. Um, we do this type of research all the time. And the real effectiveness of this is that, one, we get, you know, direct feedback from from actual customers. You know, we're very careful about who we select, so we get, you know, kind of representative customers. And then the, the other thing, and I think this is still surprisingly lacking in the research world, is we take immediate feedback and notes from these interviews. This isn't Michael disappearing for two weeks and writing us a report and then we all have to digest the PDF. Yeah. You know, we get as many people in the room as possible watching these interviews live. We're taking structured notes and then we're creating an analysis immediately after the interview of what worked, what didn't work, what things did we hear that we didn't expect to hear in, you know, not just from one customer but from, you know, in a, in a pattern from many customers. I know this doesn't sound like rocket science, but it's surprisingly lacking still. You know, most startups, it it requires effort to schedule user interviews. Researchers often want to, you know, do things in a much more academic way. You know, more, hey, I did this long-form research. I've created a long report. Everyone needs to digest this and think it's important. And frankly, in in the startup world, even larger startups, this kind of research often gets ignored. And so, you know, Michael has created this, you know, very rapid form of, of research that's, that's very, very effective. You lived and worked in the Bay Area for about a decade or so, uh, and you recently relocated to New York City. 
admittedly the Bay Area can be a little bit of an echo chamber when it comes to tech and design and, and startups. That's uh, an understatement, yeah. That's a, definitely the polite way of saying it. You know, we definitely get caught up thinking about like how things are done here or how things should be done across the board. Like I'm really interested in hearing if like leaving the bubble of the valley has is, is changed your perspective on, on anything. I think it's been healthy. I think, you know, in in the Bay Area, everyone thinks that everyone else in the world cares as much about technology as everyone here does. Yep. You know, it's, it's really intoxicating when you go to cafes here and, like, yep. everyone's talking. You know, when I first got here, everyone's talking about user experience design and, like, code and like, these things. And it's exciting. And then you start thinking that everyone in the world cares so much about this stuff. And that's why you see, like, apps, and they'll do, like, big release notes when they update their app. You know, it's like, oh, you know, this app got updated. Here's all the things you should care about that are new. And, like, no one gives a shit. You know, they just want to open yeah, the app yeah. and get their thing done today. But when you're inside the bubble, all these things seem to matter a lot because your friends are going to read this. And, it's you know, they're going to tell you, oh, I'm excited about this new feature. So it's been nice living in New York where, yeah. like, you know, it's a much larger population. It's a much more diverse population. And, frankly, like, you get on the subway and no one's talking about tech. Yeah. It's pretty nice. And yeah, you start yeah. thinking more about kind of, what everyone else in the world gives a shit about. Um, so that's, I think that's healthy. Nice. And in terms of like people that are doing really great design work or, or pushing design thinking forward, like who do you think we should maybe be taking notice of like outside of San Francisco and the Bay? Oh, um, that's a great question. You know, there, there are some people like Diane Mounter at uh, GitHub, I think she's been working on design systems work. Um, I think that's pretty great. Try to think, I don't think of this stuff geographically very much. No, I know, uh, yeah. You know, I was thinking of Mia Bloom or somebody, but I think she still yeah. lives here, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, so Mia, Mia's great if people want to follow what she's doing. She used to be the head of design at Pinterest, and I think she and I were speaking at a conference recently about um, building healthy design teams. I think she's got a very unique and um, very thoughtful perspective on that stuff. I mean, Jeff Fien, I think, is great, and he's he's in London now. He's a design partner at, at True Ventures. Uh, I think he, he's often been one of the, the most thoughtful designers as I was learning design. Um, and Jeffrey Zeldman, of course, yep. who's in New York. I've got to recently spend some time with him. Jeffrey, to me, is like, you know, the godfather, the godfather. of web, yeah, web design. That's what and, I was uh, going to say as well. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I still think his perspective on on the open web and um, yep. and what it means to run a design agency are still yep. um, provocative in, in the right way. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Daniel, for spending some of your, your time with us today. We really appreciate your insights. Uh, safe travels back to New York City. We'll speak soon again, I hope. Thanks so much for having me. You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, visit soundcloud.com slash intercom. If you'd like to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.com. Intercom.